Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Kinsanji Brooks Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford-Wilson. With me is my co-host and partner, Sherry Silverman. Sherry, what is on your mind today? So looking back at our last several episodes, I realized we've addressed quite a few challenges facing employers ranging from things like employee tracking to social media nightmares to marijuana in the workplace. I think we hit a high point in our last episode on marijuana. Don't you agree? (laughs) Very punny, Susan. All right. You can mock me, but I know that you enjoy the puns just as much as I do. Guilty as charged. Okay. But my point was going to be that we've talked quite a bit about various legal landmines regarding employees, but we haven't yet talked about the beginning of the employment process, hiring these employees, and the myriad of issues that employers should be aware of. Which brings us to our topic du jour. Indeed it does. And I think it's timely because, you know, there are a couple of individuals applying for a very important job right now. So what better time to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of hiring? Agreed. Though, before our listeners panic, uh, be assured that this is a politics-free zone. We promise that we will not talk about the election whatsoever. You're in a safe space for the next 20 minutes or so. After that, you're on your own. I I do recommend you stay away from social media, however. Yeah, good advice. You know, if we can't avoid the occasional cheesy pun, at least we can do is promise to stay away from politics. All right. What I'd like to do is take our pretend job applicant, Lorelai Gilmore, through the hiring process as she applies to work at Independence Inn and identify some of the common landmines along the way. Aw, I have all the feelings. You watched Gilmore Girls for me. I wanted to make you proud, but yeah, no. I still haven't seen a single episode of Gilmore Girls. But I did spend a quality 30 seconds searching for some tidbits on the internet just to humor you. You know what? I will take it. (laughs) Okay. So Lorelai fills out a job application and is asked whether she's ever been arrested and or convicted of a crime. And if so, to explain the detail and nature of the crime, it does say that answering yes will not be an automatic disqualifier from employment. So do you see any issues there? Well, yes, there could be some very big issues here. Close to 40 states and over 150 cities and counties have enacted ban the box laws for private employers. While the laws and ordinances differ, the general idea is that employers should consider a job candidate's qualifications for the job first without the stigma of a conviction or an arrest record. They're also sometimes referred to as fair chance laws because they give applicants a fair chance at employment by removing those questions initially and saving them until later in the hiring process. Right. The idea here is to delay the inquiry so it's not the first thing an employer sees from a candidate. That way the candidate gets to come in and be considered with a clean slate. Now, it doesn't mean the employer is not able to obtain this information later in the hiring process. It just means that it doesn't happen at the outset. Some of these laws say you should not inquire into arrest or conviction history until the interview stage, and others require the employer 
wait until the applicant receives a conditional job offer. Good point. I I think we should also mention, though, that it's not just these ban the box or fair chance laws that can come into play when an employer is considering arrest or conviction records. There are also some Title VII concerns here if your hiring practices are disparately impacting groups like Black men who have a disproportionate conviction and imprisonment rate. Um, The EEOC has some guidance suggesting that the use of arrest and conviction records has the potential for disparate impact on people of color. And I realize that I'm going all legalese on you here. (laughs) Yeah. And why don't you break that down? So put another way, the EEOC says that certain screening practices hurt certain categories of people more than others. So because certain groups of people are arrested at a rate that is two to three times higher proportionally than Caucasians, asking about arrest or conviction history hurts, for example, black males trying to get a job more than it does white males. Obviously, you and I reserve the right to disagree with the EEOC at any point, but it is worth knowing that that is the agency's position. Yes. Also, specific to arrests, the mere fact that an individual was arrested does not mean that criminal conduct actually occurred. Our criminal system is supposed to operate on the principle that someone is innocent until proven guilty, not the other way around. Plus, many arrests do not result in criminal charges or the charges end up getting dismissed. So employers should not be asking this question on their job application. And here's a good time for a state-specific disclaimer. Some states do specifically prohibit asking for arrests. Of course, convictions are different from arrests, but like we said earlier, they should not be an automatic bar to employment either in most circumstances. Yep. Now keep in mind, some of this is going to be fact-specific and industry-specific. Without getting into the nuts and bolts of how these claims operate, There are situations where employers can justify the use of criminal background information by showing that it is considering the information because it is job-related and consistent with business necessity, but they have to do this by conducting an individualized assessment. The EOC suggests employers should consider a variety of factors, and they have a list of eight of them. So the facts and circumstances surrounding the conviction, the number of convictions, the age of the applicant at the time of the conviction or release from incarceration, evidence of related incidents, whether they've had any rehabilitation, employment or character references, fitness for the position and bonding. Wow. That is a lovely legal list, (laughs) but let's make it a little short and sweet you're going to want to think about whether the conviction is related to the actual job performance and give the applicant a chance to explain the nature of the conviction and when it happened. Most of the time, one conviction that someone who is 60 had back when he was 18 and participating in a civil rights protest isn't going to be something that should disqualify him from a job now. Or maybe the conviction sounds worse than it was, but you won't know unless you ask the question. And of course, I'm going to hop up on my soapbox here and say that your policy should reflect your practices. Agreed. So just to sum it all up, do not ask about arrests, 
You might not be able to ask about convictions in the job application either if there's a ban the box law in your area. And we generally do not recommend a blanket policy excluding any applicant with a conviction unless that's something required by the law or regulations applicable to your industry. Good recap. All right, so let's get back to our applicant, Lorelai Gilmore. Let's say she submits her application. Now what? All right, Susan, let's assume you schedule an interview with her and she shows up with her hair in cornrows, but the Independence Inn's appearance policy prohibits employees from wearing dreads, braids, or other hairstyles that are, quote, not neat and professional. Oh, man, this definitely comes up. There have been many challenges to these types of hairstyle policies over the years because, again, of the disparate impact that they have since certain hairstyles are historically or culturally associated with certain races or ethnicities. For the most part, courts have usually held that banning dreadlocks in the workplace under a race-neutral grooming policy without more is not intentional race-based discrimination. However, a few states and localities have recently enacted their own laws that protect individuals from being discriminated against because of their hairstyle. Yep. For example, the New York City Commission on Human Rights adopted guidelines under which it can impose penalty on those who harass, demote, or fire individuals because of their hair. And they have a list of hairstyles that are considered protected under those guidelines. And those include natural hair, treated or untreated hairstyles such as locks, cornrows, twists, braids, bantu knots, fades, afros, and or the right to keep hair in an uncut or untrimmed state. California's law on this topic is called the Crown Act. And the Crown Act actually updates the definition of race in the California Fair Employment and Housing Act to be inclusive of traits historically associated with race, including, but not limited to, hair texture and protective hairstyles. The Crown Act became effective in January of 2020, I believe, and it prevents enforcement of grooming policies that claim to be race neutral, but in reality, have that disproportionate negative impact on people of color. Even if you aren't in a jurisdiction that currently protects hairstyles, people do file Title VII lawsuits on this basis. And there's a federal Crown Act of 2020 that was passed by the House in September. So it may very well become federal law soon anyway. You know, Sherry, reasonable minds could differ here. I guess. But in my opinion, having a policy that prohibits certain hairstyles, it just isn't the hill you want to die on. Assuming, of course, that there isn't a safety risk ex- associated with like long hair getting stuck in the conveyor belt. Um, I'm not, I'm not you're sure trying why you would. Come up with, you're trying hard to come up with a scenario, which is a problem. Yeah. yeah but, you know, I, I'm not sure why I why you would care if someone wears his or her hair in cornrows or not. Yeah, I agree. All right. Okay. So, so far, Lorelai seems like a good fit. And let's assume the employer doesn't care about her hairstyle either. The employer wants to hire her as a housekeeper at the Independence Inn, but they need to run a background check because she's going to have access to the guest belongings and you kind of 
want to make sure she doesn't have a history of theft or assault or anything like that. I so Mia, <laughs> good, good idea. So Mia, the owner of the inn, lets her know that she will be using a background check company to run a background report and she will give her the go ahead to start working if it comes back clear. I really love that you Googled this information just for me, Sherry, and I will not ruin your carefully constructed scenario by saying in the show, Mia would never have run a background check on Lorelai. She was like 16 or 17 and had a baby. Um, okay. Yeah. So I may not be following the script exactly. <laughs> I, I, 30 seconds didn't give me all that information, but I get points for effort. No? <laughs> yes, Absolutely. So going with your scenario, Mia has some problems here because it sounds like she is not complying with the Fair Credit Reporting Act or the FCRA. In sum, the FCRA requires employers to obtain written authorization and provide certain documents to an individual when using a consumer reporting agency to perform credit and background checks on employees and applicants. It's a pretty specific requirement that you will certainly want to follow because otherwise you may face that big, scary thing called a class action lawsuit. Thus, before Mia has her vendor run the background check, Lorelai must receive a copy of that FCRA disclosure and sign an authorization form consenting to that search. Of course, some states require their own forms and procedures too, but The FCRA is a federal law, so it almost certainly applies to all of our listeners. Under the FCRA, you need to be sure that the written disclosure you're providing is a separate document and does not include any extraneous language. It should not be part of the job application, and it must be its own form. Now, this seems simple, but it's a huge area of potential liability for class actions. I mean, many of the recent FCRA lawsuits are based on allegations that the disclosure contained too much information, like a a liability release or state-required notices in the disclosure, and that all violates the requirement that the disclosure be freestanding. Yep, it is definitely wise to check on this. Because the exposure can be huge if you're talking about a document that was given to every single employee you've hired. And that's just the first part. The FCRA also has requirements related to the use of background check results. Let's say Lorelai's report comes back with a conviction for altering a government document and Mia decides she doesn't want to hire her because of it. Before making that decision outright, though, she needs to provide her with a pre-adverse action letter, which will include a copy of the background test results and notice that she has an opportunity to discuss the report with the employer before they make a final decision. This is very important for a couple of reasons. First, it could be a case of mistaken identity. True story. My husband has gotten stopped at the border every time for the last 10 years because there is another guy out there from New Hampshire with the exact same name and the exact same birthday, but he has a warrant out for his arrest. So the guys with guns start coming out of the woodwork at borders until they figure out my husband is not that guy. I never knew that. That's hysterical and awful all at the same time. And I'm going to call you when we're done to find out more. But a very good example of how this can happen. 
Another factor might be that Lorelai has a very good explanation for the conviction. For example, altering an official government document sounds really bad, but let me tell you, things are not always as terrible as they sound. I had a friend in college who cut a supermodel's face out of a magazine and just taped it on her license because she thought it was funny. And then she was pulled over for speeding. And when she took it out, the cop arrested her for this exact charge. So there are a variety of other scenarios like this that, you know, they can be simply explained, but the key is to give the candidate a chance. That cop must have must have been having like a horrible <laughs> night to get her for that. Right. All right. So this is is not only legally required, but it can be entertaining as, you know, you and I have heard all kinds of fun stories when a candidate tries to explain why something popped up. Um, (laughs) Employment lawyers do have a bit of a skewed sense of humor. However, I'll, I'll confess that. All right. So let's say that the employer decides the candidate's explanation is insufficient and there is a legitimate reason, um, a legitimate business necessity, pardon me, not to hire her. At that point, the employer will send the adverse action letter as required by the FCRA. Okay. But let's assume Lorelai gives a great explanation. Like how it really was her daughter who has the same name who has a felony conviction for boat theft and some government official somewhere out there accidentally entered it under her name and said. Um, So there's no concern there and she can be hired. And yes, I apologize to all the hardcore Gilmore Girl fans out there who know that I'm really messing with the timeline, but just, just go with me on this one, okay? All right. I guess I'll take your word for that. Um, So should we just tell her when and where to show up or do you have any other suggestions for best practices for hiring? You know, I recommend sending an offer letter. This will give the new employee all of the important information she needs to know regarding logistics, but it will make clear the start date, the agreed rate of pay, whether the employee is classified as exempt or non-exempt, if the employee will be eligible for benefits and when, what the employee's anticipated schedule will be, and if applicable, that the employment is at will. Yes. And we often do refer back to offer letters when defending wage and hour claims or other disputes when it comes to terms of employment. And some states and municipalities require you to tell employees in writing stuff like, you know, when they'll be paid or what they'll be paid and what their schedule will look like. It's true. Also, the offer should make clear if it is contingent upon successful completion of any tests or checks like, oh, a drug test or a background check. If those are required, depending on the position, you may also want to say that the offer is made with the understanding that the candidate is not subject to any relevant restrictive covenants, such as a non-compete agreement. Ideally, you'd find this out before going through the interview process or during the interview process, and you may even want to put it on a job application where it's appropriate for that position. I agree. I mean, it'll make it clear that the company is not trying to run afoul of any enforceable agreements, and it does not want to receive any confidential or protected information from the former employer. Now, I don't think it's necessary for every single position, but there's some definite value there. Ask us how we know. (laughs) All right, Sherry, before we wrap it up, I know both you and I have some 
wild stories about hiring. Yes, we do. What you got? Well, my absolute favorite hiring faux pas comes from something that we saw in my office, man, years ago now. This guy filed suit against our client. In the process of discovery, we, of course, got his resume. If I'm remembering correctly, I think this guy claimed that he graduated from the University of Illinois with honors. Turns out this gentleman did not graduate from the University of Illinois, and I don't think he even attended there. In fact, he was a guest of the fine state of Illinois during this time period because he was in prison. So Hmm. if you can find resume inconsistencies like that or, you know, realize that an applicant is lying through his teeth to you during the application process and before you hire him, I tend to think that is an excellent use of your time. Really great advice. Thank you for sharing that. That is hysterical. We've seen similar things as well. All right. Now that we have finished Lorelai's job application process, I have to ask, does she get the job? You're going to have to watch Gilmore Girls to find out. (sighs) Touche, my friend. (laughs) Thanks for joining me today, Sherry. (laughs) Thanks, Susan. Before we sign off, I want to make my typical request of our listeners. As I've said before, we are a new podcast, and it would be wonderful if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave us a written review on iTunes so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. We hope you tune in again in a couple of weeks for the next episode.